So th thank you, thank you very much for inviting me, and, and, and would like to give a sort of perspective from the university. Many of you are here, perhaps even before uh, I introduce a lady to the, the room. I am concerned I'm the tenth man in a row that's speaking, but uh, we, we are really concerned that uh, the access to Europe has been absolutely uh, transformational from the time that many of you were here perhaps as undergraduates in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And although Margaret Thatcher did not win the support of Oxford, actually the policies, and, and, and I guess I was really struck by the first talk of the day, wh whether you know, populists follow the, uh, if you like, the policies of their predecessors, and, and whether that means we're doomed, I, 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 I will leave till the end. But coming into Europe, uh, it was obviously Ted Heath and, and his successor in the Conservative Party, Margaret Thatcher, that, that really led to us getting into Europe, <laughs> even though it was during a, a Wilson-Callaghan period. And the influence of being in Europe for this university has been quite transformational. In the 1960s, 1970s, when I first came up, it was major teaching, the colleges were strong in teaching, but the quality of the infrastructure in the colleges, the, uh, the, the access to research infrastructure, the, the, the available funding was really very minimal compared to 40 years on what we've now got today. And a lot of that is to do with our being very open, not just with Europe, but with the rest of the world. And, and you know, I'm concerned, yes, I think, Paul, you would agree that the accommodations are, are transformed since we were undergraduates. The food, I'm sure, at college last night was, was magnificent compared to dinner in the 1970s. And, and, I, and I would, of course, say that the, the fashions have improved quite dramatically in terms of what people are wearing. We fast forward to the referendum, and, of course, David Cameron's successor. Is she going to go in a completely different direction to what David Cameron was pushing. And, uh, and I wonder, I, I think the jury is out, despite everything that we've heard today, despite everything that we've been fed by the media. I, I don't know if in the next two, three years, we are successfully going to transition out of, of Europe, whatever that means, into being, if you like, the global Britain that's negotiating the activity around the world. My concern is how we're going to mitigate the risk of making that metamorphosis for a university. And, and, and the reason I say that is that we are really very, very collaborative with all of the infrastructure, the access to students and talent, the, uh, the faculty, the funding, and, and, and above all else, the network of collaboration, which, which has made Europe really very, very strong indeed in, 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 in the world of, of research and scholarship, allowed us to compete really very successfully with the North Americans, with China, with India, with Asia, but, but critically, a lot of that is led by the UK. Probably 20-25% of the activity is led by the UK, and an awful lot of the activity has supported the success of our universities. Seven of the top ten universities in Europe are, are in Britain, and the three that are not are actually not in Europe. Two are in Switzerland, and one is in Israel. So the numbers, just, just to give you a few numbers, Imperial is perhaps the heaviest in terms of dependency on non-EU, sorry, non-UK EU staff. Uh, but the top universities are running somewhere between 15 and 25 percent. In terms of student intake, it runs around about 15 to 20 percent. And in terms of research funding, it, it varies from subject to subject, but it, it's of the order of 15 to 20 percent. And in areas such as the humanities and social sciences, it, it really is a lot more. 
And so just to sort of suggest to you what the risks and opportunities might be uh, in, in going into a transition period and beyond, and, and, it, and it really is now that we're worried. We're worried about not being able to compete for the rest of 20, Horizon 2020, the Framework 8, not being part of the discussions around, the, the so-called Bohemia discussions around Framework 9, and I'll come back to those numbers shortly. We are concerned that we currently attract talent from all over Europe, 600 million people. Some of our best students are coming from Europe, as are many of our best staff. And the access to the infrastructure, we will have to reinvent, or we're going to end up um, actually competing with Europe, which is actually somewhat wasteful when, when indeed we need to be competing with North America and, and, and Asia. The benefits may be that there'll be higher overseas fee income and that may allow us to discount fees for people to, to recruit the brightest and the best. It may be that, that and we're, we're told by the people who are strongly on the side of Brexit that, that there'll be less EU regulation. I, I, I think that remains to be seen, whether in the absence of the European Medicines Agency and, and all of the other supports that we've had to do our work, whether we can do it in a leaner, meaner way. I think that, 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 that hypothesis has yet to be proven. And of course, the funding that we might get directly from the UK government might compensate in part, but it risks losing all of the activity, all of the networks that the current funding system entrains. And so the benefits, I suspect, are, are, are going to be outweighed quite heavily by the risks. And the question is, what are we going to do to mitigate them? Uh, first big, big <coughs> issue is, is actually funding. Of the order of 100 million is coming into Oxford from European funding. Uh, that is particularly <coughs> important. It's the lion's share of funding in humanities and social sciences. It's less so in the physical sciences and it's a lot less in, in, in medicine, the, the faculty or the division that I ran. But it's the equivalent to lose European funding for medicine would be the equivalent to losing all of our Wellcome Trust funding, which is paying out about one in four of every pound that we use, not just in the UK, but around the world to pursue the research that we do. And, and again, Oxford, Cambridge, UCL, Imperial, King's, Edinburgh, Manchester, in the top 10 universities in Europe uh, are getting an awful lot of resource that will not be resupplied easily coming from what will be called UKRI. Uh, and, and, and the benefits have been quite dramatic. This is the snapshot from the previous framework we're almost getting twice as much back as we put in. Framework 8, we might be putting in of the order of 9, getting 16. The real risk is that with Framework uh, 9 coming up, which is going to be funded to the tune of about 150 to 180 billion in the 2020 to 2027 era, after we've finished the transition period, we would expect to put in about 10%, so of the order of 15 billion. And currently, we would have been attracting 20% back, so of the order of 20 billion. That's of the order of three or four billion a year, which is a huge proportion of, of, of not just Europe's funding, but, but what has been available to universities in Britain. And we've been doing something right. We've been getting the best students. We've been getting the best faculty. We've been winning of the order of 20% of, of the major funding grants. And, and our, our success is judged by just how international we are, and one of the things that's happened in the US with their nationalism and their loss of being able to use NIH funding, certainly in medicine, to support our international publication, has been a drop in the rate of publishing in a truly international way. In, in the UK, in Germany, in France, there's been massive 
increases in the amount of work that's done collaboratively with partners around Europe. And, and that's meant that of the order of you know, three or four countries are really holding of the order of 80% of the funding because it's being awarded on the basis of excellence. The minute the UK comes out of this arrangement, Spain, Germany, Italy and France, the Netherlands, are very worried that the other member countries will want that money to be distributed in a partisan way by country, uh, but not by the, the adherence to the award of funding on the basis of pure excellence. Part of it has been, of course, the um, ability of the UK to, to use the, 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 the English language, perhaps, but, but that's Spain, Germany, Italy, France, the Netherlands are catching up very rapidly in terms of the use of English in the way they teach and the way they do research. And while that's also been the reason that we've been the top destination for European students, many of the courses now are being taught in English and I think we risk seeing many of the brightest and the best students not coming here because increasingly even though they may wish to study in English they're going to have more choice than they've had. And just again to give you a sense of what's happened in, in, in over the 10 years that I've been in, in, in involved in running the university here, we, we have seen not, not a huge increase in the number of students overall, but we have seen this increase from 10% to 16% in terms of the students coming from Europe and a steady, uh, steady level in terms of the overall international non-European students. So that the undergraduates particularly have... Um, if you like, the numbers have not changed. If anything, they've shrunk a little bit. And this has been of concern to the colleges in terms of getting the best and brightest UK students into the undergraduate levels. But the colleges have seen enormous benefit in terms of the quality of the students, which has almost you know, gone up 50% in the undergraduate years over the last 10 years. The students here in the yellow box are 50% more likely to get a first-class degree than those coming from UK schools. So these are really well-selected, really very talented, and, and, and of course we have the advantage in Oxford, as they do in Cambridge, of attracting the brightest and the best, and we mustn't lose that. In terms of postgraduate students, we, we've seen more and more uh, postgraduate taught students coming in, the business school, the school of government, the, the social sciences in particular have, have increased the amount of taught courses, which attracts people particularly from internationally, about 50% are coming from around, the, the, from actually more than 50% from the rest of the world. And then in terms of the, uh, un, the, the research students, we, we, we've seen more and more support particularly, again, from European programmes, not just for the undergraduates and graduates in the Erasmus programme, but also through the Marie Curie programme, the fellowships that have supported people coming here. So just to sort of go through, we heard a number of, of, of um, I think, pertinent uh, observations that were made during the course of the day. But the first one that I would make is that actually the nation states have been particularly uh, inhibitory to the development of the best universities over the last millennium. And Bologna really got going. It's the first European university that's been in continuous uh, operation since 1088, so 100 and so years older than Oxford. But it was founded on a principle that, that really matters to the freedom of, uh, if you like, inquiry and the freedom of a university. And its charter from 1088 embraced what was a revolutionary idea that scholars and their ideas would pass without hindrance and that there would be no oppression by national borders. And in Bologna, the university arose out of a series of what they called nations, 
almost like little colleges representing the countries from where the students came. And of course, collectively, those nations gathered together to form a universitas, which then obviously entered into some collective bargaining and, uh, and arranged the town gown uh, protections that they needed and paid taxes. And, and that's how this university got going. Likewise, that, that freedom of movement of students has been absolutely critical to, to what I, I regard as fundamental freedoms for the universities, for academe. The ability to, to say what, what needs to be said, the, the freedom of inquiry. And, and of course, we've heard a lot about this in the last few weeks with respect to platforming and safe spaces and the like. But it really does matter that, that, that what is uh, studied, that, that, that what we're allowed to publish, that, that there is freedom of collaboration around the world. And critically, it's, it's the freedom of movement, the students, the scholars, the money, the infrastructure, the access to collections. And the idea that these could be inhibited coming out of Europe is, is, is of course, a threat to what we do. And, of course, it's interesting that you know, the, 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 the movement of, of people, of services, of goods, of capital, which has been so important to the development of the EU, in many ways has analogies to what, what needs to be moving free, freely in the university sector. And of course the paradox is, and it goes back to you know, two or three big events in UK history, but it was Henry II and his row uh, with the church and Thomas Becket that ended up actually stopping the scholars going to France, which, which is how Oxford came into being. And of course the big events around the Civil War were very challenging to Oxford in terms of, uh, and, and I think you know, for three or four hundred years, certainly in the sciences, we were held back compared to Cambridge. And, and, and now perhaps the third biggest challenge, despite the world wars, despite all of the events of the 20th century, this challenge of Brexit, I, I think, does put at risk our standing as the number one university, at least according to the Times Higher. How are we going to make sure that that talent comes here, that, that talent which brings its uh, funding, that, 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 that really does allow us to lead much in the way of scholarship around the world. How do we continue to do that work? And this is just from Sunday. This is from uh, the, there's David Buchan in the room, and this is Lizzie Buchan, who is an, a, a correspondent with The Independent. Um, the idea that academics are leaving is, I think, overhyped at the moment. Although there are departures, and, and the suggestion was that there's been an increase, the reality is, is that Actually, academics are like gypsies. We move around. And the, the, the reality is that although Oxford saw 230 departures, we've probably seen more than 250 arrivals. People come, people go. The question is what's going to happen after 2020? And, and it's not to do with the citizenship, which has, I think, been pinned down in phase one. It's to do with the fact that the reason that people are mobile is that they're funded, and the reason that they stay here is that they continue to be very attractive. But the minute they lose their European funding, they lose their chance of being recruited competitively, perhaps back to their own country. Once they've lost their funding, they will not be offered the chairs that they're currently being offered. And it was said at UCL that something like 70 or 80 percent of the academics have been offered jobs in the last year back in their home countries. I suspect the same number is effectively true. I would worry if people weren't being offered jobs. But the reason that they're still staying here is they continue to be able to attract funding. And what will cause an exodus is the minute they can't access the funding that, 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 that has seen their appointment and their success. And, and, and that worries me a great deal. The second big issue is, 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 of course, reinventing the wheel and the idea that we're going to reinvent things that, that we really can't easily redevelop, like Euratom, the Space Agency, the European Medicines Agency, CERN, the big infrastructure, the big 
big, um, if you like, programs, some of whom predate the, the creation of the EU, like Euratom, absolutely essential that we continue to partner in those programs. And so this university will really want everything that we can get to keep the borders open, to make sure that students are not counted as migrant numbers, to make sure that our EU citizens are secure in terms of their citizenship rights, their access to health care, their, their, their ability to bring their family in, be they the elderly parents, or, or, or to make sure that their children can go to school and universities. And, and, and beyond that, it's the framework programs. How are we going to continue in a place like Oxford to attract the equivalent to the 100 million and all of the networks and activity that that brings? Are we going to be able to host grants even though the EU will see us as a third country status unless we can negotiate some, if you like, uh, specific deal for our sector? We would essentially want to be able to coordinate projects that will require many of our academics to have a base inside Europe in order to demonstrate that they are working in Europe. That's particularly easy in areas such as archaeology. It's quite easy actually in areas where data is being handled across large data sets in Europe, so long as we create some kind of base for people to have a legal entity inside the, the European Union. We need to keep the university as attractive as it possibly can be, as it has been for the last 30 or 40 years, and, and, and we need to find ways of, of actually discounting the costs for people coming here, whether it's from the EU or from the rest of the world. We need to be more Harvard, Yale or Stanford-like if we're going to continue to, to have the, the, the place that we've enjoyed in the last few years. And, I, and I'm really concerned that we're not at the table with the Bohemia process. We're not currently being invited to, to help set future research agendas. And whereas we started a year ago, <coughs> 18 months ago, trying to see if we could get some kind of associate country or associate country plus status, that looks increasingly difficult. And the question is, how are we going to find some alignment in, in, in a research way that, 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 that Theresa May and, and the, the, the government will support as we go into phase two in terms of the trade negotiations? By being in, we help Europe. Obviously, by being in, it helps what we're trying to do. We spent a lot of time in the last year uh, trying to establish collaborations. We, we, we've obviously got thousands of collaborations around the world and many hundreds within Europe. But we've been able to just, just signed off in December a collaboration with all of the partners in Berlin, the Free Humboldt Technical University and the Charité, along with uh, some of the research centres, Max Planck and the, the WZB in social sciences, to try to find a way of having a, a, a really across the university, a wide-ranging collaboration. And, and, and Louise, who, who, who is the Vice-Chancellor here, who was really keen to see the statement made that although you know, the UK is leaving the European Union, it's not leaving Europe. Well, Oxford is not leaving Europe either. Oxford needs to remain a European university with, with global reach. And to that end, I think having partners inside Europe is going to be important. This is a very general across the four divisions approach, including the museums and libraries. There'll be other approaches that, that, that go into very specific areas with perhaps with Sciences Po in Paris, perhaps with the Karolinska in medicine, perhaps with uh, other nation states in a bilateral way. But I think it's important that we have not just a symbolism, but we act 
in terms of absolute intent over the next year or two that we establish ourselves with a centre, with a physical presence, one that gives us a legal identity and one where we can host people and one where people can use a, a legal office to partner with colleagues in Europe to make applications for European funding, which although it won't be able to be repatriated back to the UK, will allow us to guide the workshops, to guide the um, interactions that lead to comprehensive uh, programmatic work in Europe wherein we continue to play a leadership role. And I'll finish by saying that from my point of view the idea and, and, and you know, it doesn't matter where you look in history once you put up national walls and it, it, big science whether it's antibiotics like penicillin or it's the genome project or the Manhattan project, there's no such thing as national science uh, in the same way that there's no national multiplication table and to quote Chekhov if it's national it's no longer science. We need to be an international university, one based in Europe. Thank you.